0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Philip Star. And Professor Philip, thank you for being with us. I know through my many secret agent sources around the globe that you're suffering from a cold, so I'm especially <laughs> grateful that you're here. How are you actually feeling?
1: I'm feeling okay, cold-wise. And um, this is kind of common business, as is uh, much of the other stuff that occupies my mind these days, and which is like maybe with many in the social and cultural sciences, um, a sort of a feeling of uh, great and multiple crisis mm. um, that has at least been very um, sort of acute um, in the last uh, four to five years. And, well, my my cold is just the most subjective uh, part of the general feeling of crisis. (laughs) Maybe not the one that we should uh, discuss uh, most broadly.
0: (laughs) Well, it's interesting. I started the podcast series in 2010, and it ran pretty regularly for six years. And then for various reasons, I stopped it and started it again late last year. One of the themes that's different over that break, that hiatus is that people now, lots of them, in start our conversations by talking about an oscillation between despair and hope because yeah. of the wide variety of crises that they're perceiving. And I started the series while the global financial crisis was still in place. People weren't talking ab- about it with such a sense of doom. So perhaps you could tell us from your perspective, from the work you do, I think... Uh, I read somewhere that you describe yourself as a sociologist with one foot in political economy. But when I read your work, I think of you sometimes as a political economist with one foot in sociology. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your, those different selves and how they make mm-hmm. sense of our, of our crisis. Because a couple of the things that you've specialized in are questions of technology and also questions of climate. And clearly we're mm-hmm. in moments of crisis on those fronts as we speak.
1: So um, I think I might be just from the discipline that I'm attached to, I might be um, particularly well prepared for that feeling, um, for that combination of despair and hope that you mentioned. Because, um, you know, I'm a German academic. Um, I am in some way attached to uh, the heritage of um, critical theory Um, by default when you look at, at my work in a way and um this whole idea that um there is a lot of despair and many things are actually already lost and you cannot regain them um, but at the same time um from this uh, sort of creating um a strong sense of social critique and also hope from that situation this is in a way the default setting of critical theory at least the way i i perceive it and also the way i i practice it um Generally speaking, um, I mean, you, you you might have read this part sociologist, part political economy economist, part um, on the website, and yeah, it, it I think it captures quite well um, what I'm doing. In particular, because when you look at technology issues, but also at issues of climate or say the broader um, planetary crisis of, of ecology, um, I think it's first of all it's very hard to to develop um, profound sociological questions that are not based in some sort of political economy. Um, just because, if you think of technology, the whole develop, the whole issue of technological development is so strongly connected to questions of power and domination of capitalism and the way it transforms. And so is um, the question of ecological change. Um, and in order to develop. Um, Good sociological questions, I would argue, you first have to understand the, the political economic uh, circumstances and, and foundations.
0: I, I think if we go back to Adorno, and actually you can take it further back, obviously, to Marx and before him Hegel and even Kant, there is this question of dominating nature. Yeah. Uh, which is celebrated by Hegel very much, to a certain extent by Marx. I think less so by Adorno, actually, um, because there is this sense of the overwhelming technological control. And you get some of it in Horkheimer as well, I think. So I, I'm i not an expert in that tradition. And I'm reading these things in translation, so that always has to be acknowledged. But I do think there's a very important history that goes back centuries in German philosophy <clears throat> and the emergence of critical theory, the Frankfurt School and its operation that is very important for understanding the contemporary environmental crisis, incredibly important, twinned with other influences like ecofeminism, for example, and also other uh, methods. But I quite agree with you. I think that's a terribly important point that to understand power, to understand the operation of capital, political economy is important. What does it? What does that help us with when it comes to understanding social movements? If I'm trying to understand the Greens or various third sector organisations that are working on behalf of the environment, how can political economy help me to do that?
1: Um, well, this this is not really um, what I'm working on, but generally speaking, sociology. And there is a strong sense that class matters in general. So when it comes to social movements, political movements, or also voting behavior, um, this is something that comes back in the data all the time. So um, the idea that we're sort of in those um, liberal or post-liberal societies that we're living in 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 Western Europe, um, that we're post-class is obviously not true when it comes to the question of whether, of how class shapes um, political behavior. Um, It certainly does. Um, I do think that there are... Well, the the interesting point is um, that if you look at those Western European countries, if you look at Germany in particular, which I think is, in a way, um, in certain ways, um, sort of, let's say, in terms of the rise of um, right-wing populism, it's kind of late to the party in Europe. Um, We have a very big right-wing populist party that is now... um, um, in the process of, of uh, getting bigger and bigger. So um, sort of this is uh, European normality um, nowadays. Um, but on the other side of the spectrum with the Green Party and its um, class-based or social structure-based electorate, we, are act- we were actually at the forefront. And you can what you can see in terms of the relationship of class structure and political behavior is that it is most strongly connected in these two um, parts of the uh, spectrum of social structure. So um, the people with the, uh, who vote ecological, they have the strongest um, uh, similarities in terms of several um, items and dimensions and the, the ones who are voting right-wing um, populist parties, they do as well. And oftentimes they do argue indeed about ecological issues, right? Um, we have this in terms of uh, the developments around, which you could probably coin or term, modernization would be um, the prime strategy, so to speak, of um, um, mid-middle like parties of the middle um, within um, those liberal societies. Um then you always um like whenever something hits the live world like say you you go to, for the cars or you go for the heating systems, the insulation of homes like in the u k this sort of stuff whenever something hits the live world um you see how strong political the political conflict in this area um are these days, and um I'd say with, with, with all the um, good arguments to say that uh, the political structure remains class-based, there is also um, a change in the way of um, how class conflict plays out um, within this class structure, right?
0: And turning now towards your own work, Prof, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about what you're currently researching, what you're currently up to.
1: Yeah, so I'm um, I'm not very old or for an academic. <laughs> I'm forty years old, so um, I, I was not able to to develop um, sort of a, a decade long um, heritage of research. But there are two things that I connect in um, in terms with the goal of um, develop, developing some sort of um, social theory of the present. And those two, you could call them vectors, maybe. And um, in um, my research, there are technology and ecology, as you mentioned before. Um, now, those two issues, they converge in a very interesting way when you look at the present. Um, first of all, the major transformations within the economy, but also within society, have been induced by the digital transformation in recent decades, right? At least since the turn of the millennium digital technologies have moved to the forefront of economic development. Those companies, leading companies of digital capitalism, they are the most valuable companies of the world. They are arguably also the most powerful um, uh, companies in the world, and we can dig deeper into that later if you want to, um, Toby. Um, and on the other hand, if you look at what those companies do, the type of business models they have um, implemented and the way they run, what you see is that they are very much about controlling, guiding behavior, creating infrastructures that's, that that um, work as frames for um, modern light worlds, and in a way, infrastructures that are per- constantly adapting to um, situations that evolve. So um, we have we know this from. Um, from the commercial internet, for example, um, there's a personal profile about you and me um, with several tech companies and um, this profile and the things it it um, indicates to the, those companies will change with uh, or at least adapt with every action that we take within the internet and that is tracked and so on. Um, at the same time, and this now is the bridge between, I would argue, at least theoretically, right, this is the bridge or analytically, this is the bridge between um, digital, te- digital technologies and um, the current ecological situation. At the same time, this image of um, adaptation is currently becoming the main issue and the main um, focal point of um, the way modern societies react to um, climate change and ecological crisis. With this process, with sort of the rise of certain technologies whose core feature I would argue is that they are able to recursively adapt to changing environments. And the idea that this is exactly what um, societies facing a planetary crisis of ecology need to do in order to survive actually. And this creates a situation where we are currently and I, I will probably, that will probably happen even more in the future We see those two vectors within contemporary society converging. Digital and green are sort of coming together in this, um, well, I would argue, technocratic um, way of thinking about the political development of society in terms of um, technological determinism, basically. So ironically, the
0: very forces that are dominating our life world are the forces that can give us an example of how to proceed in order to survive our climate catastrophe?
1: They can give us one example, which doesn't mean that it's the right example, right? So um, if we think about how um, societies like ours should change um, or transform as a reaction to climate change and ecological crises, um, I think the most dominant reaction um, within the public would not, at least not on the forefront, be that we should solve all this via technology. I mean, this is definitely a powerful issue and it's hard to argue that we shouldn't use any technologies that are actually, (laughs) um, that can be made good use of um, in order to work on, on ecological issues. But then again, as a sociologist, I'm very sort of, Sober when it comes to expectations um, in this regard, because the like if you look at sociology of technology, there it's its basic story is that things don't work like they're intended. It's basically what what every type of sociology of technology has always found out. There are always um, second order problems and um, unintended consequences, and so on and so on. So I'm um, I'm very skeptical about the the um, actual ability of technology to solve major social problems. But, and I think this is, um, it's also bringing us back to our quick uh, chat about critical theory, because it changes the way critical theory has to operate, I would argue. But, um, in a a society that is heavily occupied with ideas of problems of self-preservation, survival apocalypse, and so on right in such a society it's kind of it seems to me to be quite natural that people long for a depoliticization of those issues and you know like when 200 years ago god was the source of depoliticization of such issues nowadays it's only science and technology that is left not that we can actually deliver we as science and technology you know <laughs> I can actually deliver those um depoliticizations, but it is indeed what society demands. If you look at Fridays for Future, for example, and listen to science, you could argue that this is actually a technocratic, an attempt to sort of ask for a good technocratic governance, listening to science, depoliticizing um, issues of climate change and so on. And I think one has to be um, very clear that um, as it is probably very, very hard, possibly impossible, for democracies to deal with issues of self-preservation in a democratic way, to find ways to depoliticize them, whether they work in the long run or not, might be a necessary precondition for stabilization of democracy in general. So this is why I think we should not just say, well, this is technocracy, this is bad, let's just um, do, do away with it. Um, we need to take this longing... Um, serious if we think about how to stabilize society in a very basic sense because if society falls apart there is no transformation at all.
0: If you think about the many projects for international democracy rifling through the various organizations that were created by the League of Nations and then by the United Nations and before and since the ones that have tended to survive and prosper are the ones that were very technical and seemingly apolitical. The International Mm -hmm. Postal Union, the International Telecommunications Union, the World Meteorological Organization, the World Health Organization, whereas the ones that were overtly about politics, the ones that were meant to provide restraining forces on the anarchy of states, have failed almost all the Mm -hmm. time. But the issue in part because of climate change and various other ecological aspects is that the seemingly purely technocratic organizations have in fact become politicized. Mm -hmm. Think about the denunciations of the WHO that were made during the COVID-19 first waves or the way in which meteorologists are under attack by the right um, and so on it's interesting to see that this capacity to to be apolitical is itself being lost in certain areas because basic as- aspects of life have become biopolitical yeah. and climatically political. So I hear what you're saying, but it seems to me that there's a trend one can see towards a politicization of what previously had been seen as technical
1: issues. Yeah. Right? Yeah, and I think this is this is basically the crazy part about it, because if you think it in such sober terms as we're currently doing, then you realize that in order to keep any part of, you know, liberal democracy, to keep the liberal part of it at least, um, probably a certain a certain um a certain part of technocracy is necessary. Um but with I mean, you could you could go even deeper with what you said in terms of, it's not only that technocratic institutions have been politicized, but um, that the truth, their scientific background um, supposedly represented, um, has been challenged itself, right? Post-truth and so on and so on. So um, I think the problem cuts a bit deeper, but again, it brings us then to the question of... Um, to, the, to a question that is kind of bizarre for someone who'd um, say that uh, uh, he's sort of attached to a theory of critical thinking, um, that it's actually a matter of how to, how to develop um, plausible technocratic institutions that can still work in the fashion of depoliticizing um, those issues. Um while at the same time, as you as you said correctly, many of those things, and so many of them for good reasons, of course, are becoming more and more politicized.
0: There's also this question of democracy that you mentioned, because there are some elements of a means end rationality of a kind that people like Horkheimer and Habermas have well pointed out, and to a certain extent, I guess, Ulrich Beck also, right? And others in those traditions. There's a certain element of means-ends rationality that people like Robert Oppenheimer spoke about in terms of how all these left-wing physicists could countenance what they did. And that means-ends rationality is fundamentally anti-democratic, isn't it? Because it has this notion of an absolute faith in science that must be adhered to regardless of what the popular classes might, might think or want
1: yeah well, that would have been the the general argument I would say from from the um, from those people or this this type of tradition that you um, described. But um, at the same time, if you look at people like Habermas, for example, the idea that there needs to be um, that there need to be facts that people can agree on um, and that are actually you know in German it's Wahrheit's fake, so they can be deemed truthful. they can be deemed true um this this is also a part that that is attached to rationality as a as a general concept and um I mean honestly speaking um I'm not sure that this is the sociological part of the discussion I mm-hmm. um, to say what does it mean for truth and how is truth or rationality based uh, um attached to the way democracy might develop or um? abolish itself. Um, I think the sociological question um, is more about um, what are the preconditions um, for something that we would still deem to be um, a democratic type of governance. And then I think um, when you think about the present, you can really take one particular um, terminological distinction that will go a long way in helping to, to develop this. And this is the fact that if you think about it in terms of like you mentioned Ulrich Beck um, steps within modernity um, the the situation we're coming from is one where um, the whole promise of modern society was one of self-realization. It was about the individual um, individual types of sort of um, more um, um, more freedom for for um, individual subjects and this is also to a large part what um, critical theory still has it, as its normative reference point so it's not so different it, it might have a bit of a different pointing of what emancipation might mean and it might criticize the consumer society and talk about real freedoms and so on but those are usually attached to the individual and um, I I would argue, at least, Um, if you in this type of situation, broadening the possibilities for individual life chances, for individual freedoms, also in terms of consumption, was a way to stabilize modern society. If you think about contemporary society in terms of that, um, next to this um, principle of self-realization, to this promise there is a more and more reflexively known um, um, issue of self-preservation. If you, and if you think about the fact that we're not living in a society where people don't know that, right? This was still Ulrich Beck. Well, people don't know. Once they know, they'll organize, they sort of um, um, will dynamize um, democratic societies from below. And this was the story of the 1980s and 1990s in in, um, countries like Germany and the UK. Um, Nowadays, we know in Germany, 90% of the people are absolutely true believers in in climate change. They think it's a major, if not the major problem of society. There's no lack of knowledge. So people know that their self-preservation and the self-preservation of society is in danger. Then the sociological question, I think, is... How can democratic societies that societies that would deem not in terms of the abstract ideal but in terms of you know like the, the reality of what people perceive their political systems to be like what would uh, what can how can countries that are deep democratic systems that are deep democratic react to issues of self preservation I think you do see then that they have a very, they really have a problem with that because um Think, of, think about the pandemic and the uh, short, uh, how you say, like the, um, the lack of ventilators. Um, the way we dealt with that in most countries was a very technocratic way. It were doctors, no one really knows um, how they do it, how they decide what, um, um, what rules they apply and so on. And you're very happy not to know because think about the participatory process in that realm. Where most, where some people and not some abstract type of scientific knowledge that we apply to those experts um, decide who has to live and has to die. I think we would not call that um, democratic, right? Um, so I think the real issue is that issues of self preservation are gaining prominence and that they can be, that's very hard to deal with them in a way um, that is political in the democratic sense. Um, so. Again, I would argue in order not to fall into the trap of um, um autocratic developments um, that are um uh that would challenge democracy, we would we will have to um think about ways to depoliticize um to depoliticize um, ecological risk. And I think the major I think I also think that this is in a way Almost consensus in most rich countries. It is, uh, maybe except the US, you know, it is um it is the idea that in order to have ecological transformation, you will also need to have social transformation. And this social transformation needs to be just in order to be able to create political legitimacy. Now, then there are all these problems come into play um, with while well, when everybody why why if everybody is agreeing on it. And this is actually not working. But I think this is a, a different issue.
0: One of the things that you've written about is the circular economy
1: mm-hmm.
0: and the contribution that digital capitalism can, should, might make to that. I wonder if you could explain to us, to listeners who may not be so aware of these concepts, what's meant by digital capitalism, what's meant by the circular economy, at least in the way that you use these terms?
1: Yeah, so when I started to work on the concept or on my research on digital capitalism, which has been an ongoing uh, multi-year um, issue, um, I, um, I quickly started to um, treat in particular digital platforms as sort of the core organizational model of the digital economy and to a growing part of the economy in a much broader sense. So if you look at what um, platforms do, this is a term that um, has since become quite established in in political economy research on digital platforms. When you look at what they do, what you see is that they are, for the most part, um, organizations that enable exchange between certain parties, be it, say, you take the e-commerce platform of Amazon between buyers and sellers of certain products or users of smart codes through app stores. If you think about Apple and Google and um, with um, the producers of software and so on and so on. Um, what they do is they, um, how they do it is they um, gather a lot of data in order to um, supposedly create um, the best matches and create um, a certain type of transparency. That is of course very um, one-sided because um, they use their knowledge of market procedures in order to um, nudge consumers and um, sort of um, tell producers how to deliver their services and so on. So there's a lot of power involved. It's not transparency for everybody. But what you see, if you put it in a very simple term, is that you can actually, in a a sense, post-neoliberal type of economy that those platforms represent, they are post-neoliberal, Because the market isn't there anymore. Those companies are the market themselves. They control the market. So there's there's no such thing anymore as what liberals would call the market. And in such an economy, you can actually steer economic development via technological um, platforms and database governance. So... um, a large part of the more practical work that I'm doing and that you mentioned with my work on circular economy issues as one um, example is um, thinking about ways to of how to apply this type of technological governance of markets and therefore of economic outcomes and economic development, how to use this in order to achieve not only commercial means, but um, democratic and political means, in particular, if you think about circular economy, um, the well ecological um, means that are already um, democratic consensus, um, practically speaking, if you want to have a society that is close to zero waste and therefore needs to reuse and recycle every type of waste that produces, it first of all first of all needs to know. Um, say you have a certain product, say a smartphone, which part, which resource um, is where and how you can actually dismantle it. It also needs to create um, some sort of, uh, it needs to create rules of how the things that are built into this product, the smartphone for example, are built in, in order to be able to dismantle it later on. So you cannot glue it together in a way that makes it impossible to dismantle it, for example. So it needs to deeply intervene Into the producer segment of the circular economy, like Amazon deeply intervenes in the producing, um, in the world of producers that sell on its platform, for example, Um, and therefore um, represents platforms in general and database market um, design and control represent in many different ways um, possibilities to steer the economy in a more political way. That is, and now this is sort of. The, the hidden intellectual part behind it um, in a way that is actually also that can connect to the current hegemonic understanding of, um, of the economy. So if I were to talk to someone from the European Parliament or the European Union in general, if I tell them that platforms are way of, ways of democratic planning, and that we now can do what the Soviet Union wasn't able to do, but we can now do it because we have the technology, um, there will not be a conversation. But if you tell them that we are already living in a world where private companies have conquered the realm of market design, the very realm those liberal technocratic elites <laughs> within um, Europe or other um, or, or, or member states, and deemed to be their own major tool of approaching the economy, right? They approach the economy in terms of regulation and market design. This is what they do. And if you tell them, what well, they have taken that away from you, but you can get it back if you use those technologies in certain ways, and you can achieve outcomes that you have already decided upon democratically. Then I think um, you can have this type of conversation. And um, yeah, this is this is part of the stuff that I'm doing.
0: Well. A related area that you've been pondering and publishing on is artificial intelligence. And I'm interested in the possibility that what we're seeing right now is fractions of capital that have historically been opposed. So the Hollywood majors or big studios and traditional news organizations on one side and these publishing aggregators on the other, like Google with one side claiming the other is stealing its intellectual property and the other side saying we're just sharing things with people and you're old and tired, right? Mm-hmm. But now they actually have a, an at least temporary rapprochement because they both want artificial intelligence regulated.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: They're both saying, or so it seems to me, and you're more the expert than am I, We made a mistake with so-called social media, another topic you've written on importantly, by not regulating. We mustn't make that mistake again. Now, this isn't the EU speaking. This isn't leftists. This isn't unions. This Mm. is Google and Warner Brothers, both. And they're doing it because they don't want any new, as far as I can see, any new players to come onto the scene. Mm. They want to have greater control over what artificial intelligence becomes, and their way of doing it is bringing the state back in. Now, this is my slightly mad interpretation. Can you tell me where I'm wrong, or whether I'm right at all?
1: I'm not sure I can, because the the, the issues that you um, mentioned are still developing, right? But I, I mean, I'd have a similar guess, um, like you. Um, those companies have always been about market closure. And about creating market dominance um it was something that they put out in their statement quite frankly, and they created uh shareholder value with those statement and so on and so on and since um say two thousand and fifteen roughly speaking since the so called tech clash so the the backlash in public opinion against in particular the big um tech companies that you mentioned, since then they have to try to um Get more attached to the state and I, I'm not sure it is mostly as one could understand what you said um, because they fear for their um, um, for their market dominance um, but more in, well at least not from from economic competitors but because they um, they realize that they need to find some sort of political agreement um, as public opinion shifted so strongly against them. Um, The way I perceive it, and this is for me personally a very sobering aspect, as at least in Germany, and one might know, Germany is kind of um, at the forefront or was kind of at the forefront of this whole um, discussion of digital regulation, platform regulation, and so on within the European Union um, in recent years. As someone who was a little involved with those um, discussions, they were very vital and went on for a lot of years, and they have now really um, been channeled into a particular set of regulatory policies. Um, I find the results quite sobering, and I'm pretty sure that um, I'm pretty sure that there's no further appetite. Um, in Europe for further regulation. They are very much occupied with different issues now. So um, in a way, the whole whole conflict between those market-owning platform companies and the state that has played out maybe in the last six to eight years or something like that, this is now pacified um, within a regulatory framework, at least in Europe with the Digital Markets Act, the Digital Services Act, and other um, regulatory frameworks. Um, that will be evaluated in a few years in order like you know like GDPR used to be evaluated a few years and then we will see what they what they will um actually worth. And um until then at least and probably um still after that um there won't be great appetite for um bigger interventions into digital capitalism. Rather AI, as you mentioned, um has taken away the focus from those um market-dominating and market-controlling schemes that digital platforms represent and shifted it more towards um, um, at least a suggestion in public opinion, also within the political spectrum uh, in particular, that there's this next episode of digital innovation that is now sort of platforms and so on. There are no cold coffee. Um, But now you have this new realm And um, there the game is open again, which I think is not true. It's not open at all. But in a way, it is more open than it used to be, at least it used to be in the commercial Internet, because those type of applications, at least in Europe, within the um, data security framework that we are working in, um, they will need to be, for for most um, industrial corporate users, they will have to be developed again and customized again and again and again. So this means that the same um, logics of winner-takes-all market dominance that we've seen with platforms might possibly not apply for at least certain parts of um, the uh-huh. economy, um, which is why you know there, there's this company called Aleph Alpha, for example, from Heidelberg, which has uh, now, um, well... Basically, they, from a conglomerate of German industrialists and um, trade corporations, uh, they just gathered, um, you know, Bosch among them, they gathered uh, 500 million to develop develop sort of company-specific JetGPT-ish applications. And the idea there is, again, you know, like a very German idea in this quite German-European constellation that we're living in, in continental Europe. Um, the idea is that, well, um, what the, those American and, to a certain extent, Chinese companies um, did for the end user will do for the industrial um, part of the economy, like the, the whole idea of Industry four zero that was the buzz about um, 12 to 15 years ago in Germany. Um, one has to see whether this works. I'd say... The major thing to say then out loud is taking this approach politically has already accepted um, that there is only for Europe, there is only a niche within AI. It's an approach to say, well, this is our niche. Right. Broad applications, they will be developed by someone else. But for our own little industries, car industry, chemical industry, whatever, uh, machine manufacturing will develop those niche applications. You could say it's the SAPization of AI that um, Germans have come up with. Possibly not uh, a big surprise, but in a way sobering in terms of um, what we can expect from that technology.
0: Professor Stabin, the time left to us. I wonder if you could let people know a little bit about where they can read your work. And in particular, you have a very valuable book, but you've got a lot of interesting publications as well. Maybe there are one or two things there you could highlight for us.
1: Um, yeah, well, of course. So I had this I had this book. Um, the German title was Digital Capitalism or "Digitaler Kapitalismus um, that came out a few years ago, which will now um, come out in English um, with Manchester University Press. Uh, they did a great job um, managing the translation. And I think the sole... Um, all, the, all those issues about digital regulation, about the major issues of digital capitalism and so on, the theory part of it, based but based very much in empirical research that is reported there and that I have updated for the new version, um, they, can be, um, um, they can be read in, in the book that should come out pretty soon with Manchester University Press. Aside from that, I'm publishing, um, in German and in English, um, in many parts, at least. Um, the English publications can be found on my website, which is my name as one word, philipstab.de. Um, most of the English articles, um, are actually, you can actually download. And, um, well, I'm currently in the process of, um, also, um, uh, working on the translation of my latest book which in German has the title uh, Adaptation, Leitmotiv Leitmotiv of the Coming Society. And I guess this might move uh, a little faster than Digital Capitalism, and uh, if I'm lucky it might be out somewhere in early 2025. um, It's a book that deals with um, this issue of adaptation as being the major concept of Um, how to understand late modern or even after modern society.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about the sorts of changes you felt you had to make between the German version and the Manchester version of the book that's about to appear? What had altered in your thinking or had altered, as it were, on the ground?
1: Well, there are several things. So the first thing is data, really. I had to update um, much of the data Um, The other second uh, large part is that when I wrote the book, um, the whole issue of regulation was really in its infancy, um, infancy stage. And um, of course, many things happened um, since then. So um, I attached a foreword um, where I covered those issues of regulation and how to um, interpret my theory in this new light, this new type of regulatory framework. And also of how to interpret this European approach in comparison to approaches that are taken in other places of the world, say the Chinese approach to um, regulation and the American approach to to regulation. Um, These are the major things um, I did. Um, So um, in a way, it has become a whole new book because the data is new. But um, I'm quite happy that you at least I feel like I'm upheld. Um, since it's initial publishing and um, yeah we'll see where it takes me from there
0: and mm, the new book you're translating yourself is that right did you say
1: no I have a translator who's doing it you're
0: a translator because obviously your English is perfect but it's another matter oh, well, that's um, such a lie
1: <laughs> Well <laughs> okay, very kind of you thank you Toby no, not at all. I mean, um,
0: I work almost all the time in a second language, and mm. but not a second language. It's as different as German is from English. Mm. So I, I I appreciate some of the difficulties and, and admire your facility. Um, we've got about uh, five or six minutes left, maybe 10, Prof, and there are just a couple of things mm. I wanted to ask you. And then I wanted to sure. throw it over to you to add or subtract from anything that we've discussed. So my two questions, the first one, in a way, has been incarnate in much of what you've already shared with us. But how do you find
1: things out? How do I I develop ideas that then become concepts and so on? yeah well i'm I'm a very no, no it's it's a good question because um, it really is a good question. it's this is the way I would frame it. I would say to ask these questions means how do you arrive at ideas that are that at least you would call a term to be theory because sociology is a, is an academic discipline that tries to develop theory um, in my understanding. And the answer is that I arrive at those ideas empirically. It is really the, the answer. I usually start, and I tell this to all my students, um, good research starts with an interest. If you're interested in something, it's the best indicator that what what you're interested in might actually be of relevance. So I, I think the the biggest justification for research is relevance. And what is relevant before you started to dig into it um, more deeply is best to be um, found out in terms of if you're interested in something. And then if you're interested in something, um, to me, it becomes a very empirical issue. Um, But you need to have, well, you need to, of course, have this iteration between empirical work and um, theory development that then ends up in some sort of 300 page long book that I would say is my theory of X, Y, or Z.
0: Point taken, but here's my second question given your commitments to critical theory and that important philosophical tradition, you're not going to change to being a neoclassical economist based on facts that you encounter, are you? I mean, there are commitments you've got that are there.
1: If, if they were right, Toby, I might. <laughs> but, but of course, no, just uh, jokes aside, well, I, I would say this is the part of, that I call iteration, right? Of course, it's always about inter- iteration of your empirical findings and the theoretical um, um, terminology that you, uh, um, that you build on. Um, I think, but, but what I would say um, for myself is, and I think this is not so usual, I really don't think it is very usual. Um, Through empirical research, I end up not departing from entirely, but really seriously challenging um, the theoretical assumptions that I grew up with. So yes, I would say um, I do walk in the footsteps of the giants of critical theory, but um, I also think that my work on Ecological crises, on and so on. Um, it really touches the normative program of critical theory at its core. And take, for example, this, the discussion we just had about technocracy. What you see there, the, the whole idea of, I think, most people who have ever worked within the framework of critical theory would be that depoliticizing something is bad because. Politics is where individuals make their voices heard. It's the real realm of freedom, not capitalism, but democracy is the real realm of freedom. Now to say that there are problems that are particular to our times that might make it necessary in order to to cater to the people's desire for depoliticization. This is almost blasphemy within critical theory. But it is something that I arrive at through empirical research with people who face the ecological crisis or who face multiple crises, they say we only we can only work within this realm. We can only do the job that is needed to do if you free us from this constant threat of self-preservation. We need we cannot have this. You know, within a pandemic, we cannot discuss the financing of hospitals. We just cannot do it. It cannot part, be part of the political game and the situation that we deem to be one where we're fighting for um human lives right and i think this is something that's very very understandable once it comes down to practical politics it might not the positions might not depart very far from each other mine and the one of classical critical theory but the way you you arrive there and what it means for theory theory development i think there are i well to be put it bluntly i don't think critical theory um can continue the way it has done in the last thirty or forty years, and I also think that it's in a way a generational program to um, actually adapt critical theory um, to the situation of planetary crisis that we are having, and that um, say the the boomer sociology within critical theory um, has not properly acknowledged.
0: Those poor old boomer sociologists. <laughs> Thank you. That's a wonderful answer, really spirited and uh, I was going to say fiery, which sounds as though I don't like it, but I'm, I admire it I, very much. Thank you. Prof, are there things that you'd like to add that we haven't yet touched on or where you want to elaborate on something you said earlier?
1: Well, I, just let me, as we're having a conversation and I enjoyed the conversation parts of our our talk, let me just say, Toby, I don't like it either. <laughs> it's not it's not that i think to say that um we need to think about freedom as a situational category one that can only be thought of in terms of the the frame that has become narrower and narrower and not because some nasty neoliberals told us so but because as a reflexive civilization we've learned about the unintended consequences of our behavior um to say that is kind of... I do not like it either. I'd, I'd love to live in this, you know, um, um, ever um, non scars world of opportunities. Um, but I think um, critical thinking for the 21st century needs to be more serious about um, those the limits within which it operates. Um, I think it needs to do so in order to actually regain... Um some sort of relevance um within the social discourse um in general because and I think this is this is i think this is very really very important to me um people know they know that they're in the crisis that we have been talking about it's not something that is an exclusive knowledge of reflexive academics there might be some you know some people fight the knowledge they have. They might beat up someone blocking a street or something like that, but if you have to um you know if you have to beat up someone for something they say, you already know that it's there you can't you cannot argue that the knowledge isn't there then they have to aggressively avert this type of knowledge, which means that it's all already part of social of this sociological debate about what kind of society you want to live in, and I think one has to Critical theory that is based in empirical research these days has to take those facts into account.
0: Philip Stab, thank you so, so much for this enormously stimulating conversation. As I've said to several other interlocutors, I always learn a lot when I read your work, but I've learned even more listening to you today.
1: Thank you, Toby, for those great questions and the opportunity.